Hi, this is Kate Taylor, and my latest CD is Why Wait? And we together are listening to the fantastic podcast, Follow Your Dream. We'll catch you around the band. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. I am honored today to have as my guests Peter and Jeremy, Peter Asher and Jeremy Clyde. These two and their respective former partners were the softer counterparts to the hard rock beat groups of the British invasion era of the 1960s. Peter and Gordon had one of my favorite records from that era with Del Shannon's I Go to Pieces. They had a bunch of additional hits, including A World Without Love and Nobody I Know, both written by two guys named Lennon and McCartney. Peter has gone on to have one of the most distinguished careers in the music industry, first as the head of A&R for the Beatles' Apple Records, where he signed a then-unknown James Taylor, and then as producer for so many artists, including Linda Ronstadt, and currently he is the host of From Me to You, the weekly Beatles show on Sirius XM. And Jeremy Clyde, half of the iconic 60s duo Chad and Jeremy, recently was a guest on this podcast and told me some amazing stories from that era, including one that I particularly loved when he and Chad thrilled the bride and groom at a 60s wedding at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel by crashing their wedding party at the hotel entrance in order to escape a mob of screaming girls. How 60s is that? And as I do with all my musical guests, we're going to do a song fest in the middle of this episode, actually two song fests. In the first one, we're going to have some fun. I've asked Peter and Jeremy to pick out some of their favorite British invasion songs by other artists, one hit wonders or off the beaten track kind of songs, and I'll join them in this too. And in the second song fest, we'll play several hits by Peter and Gordon. I already did this for Chad and Jeremy, and then maybe a surprise number as well. And you all know that in every episode, I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make that song relevant somehow. And in this episode, I have chosen the song this time. It's the lead track from my brand new album, Bobby M and the Paisley Parade. This track features the great John Helliwell of Supertramp on saxophone. And I chose this song because this time, like the rest of the album, has 60s written all over it. That was the era when I came of age musically and when my two guests rode to the top of the charts. So Peter Asher and Jeremy Clyde, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, guys. Thank you very much for having us. Good to be here. 
Jeremy's a veteran, of course, but <laughs> my my first appearance. <laughs> I'll hold your hand, Peter. Don't worry. I have to tell you one thing to start off with, and that is both of you, you know, did some of the coolest music imaginable with your respective duos. But the other thing that you did that you gave to me and the world, and this is directed at you, Peter, were your glasses, okay, and Chad's glasses. Because you taught people like me, teenagers, that you could wear glasses and still be cool. And I went out and I got those Peter Asher dark glasses when I was a teenager. Right. And of course, but the truth of the matter is that they're really Buddy Holly glasses. That was my role model. And he was the person who taught me that that you could you could be a bit nerdy and wear glasses and still be cool because he was. He was very much. All right. So tell me, did you, Peter, have the whole Screaming Girls thing going on the way that Jeremy describes that they had the whole Screaming Girls thing going on back then? Oh, yes, I'm sure our hours were far louder and far more numerous. <laughs> but but um, the answer is yes. Well, I think we all did. I mean, the weird part was, of course, that it became a, a thing where everyone knew their roles. I mean, they, especially once the girls saw Hard Day's Night, the movie, they they went, oh, that's, you know, that's what we're supposed to do. And and so the the, the, the groups would, would half-heartedly run away and the girls would full-heartedly chase them. And... and <laughs> And it became a, a ritual and, and a lot of fun. I want you to know that's what's been missing in music for the last number of years. Okay, we don't have the Screaming Girls thing anymore. Can you bring it back? Are you sure Harry Styles and people like that aren't getting screamed at? Yes, they, they do. I'm sure they do, but I think there's a difference. And I think the difference is it, with ours, there was a naivety because it was just it was for the first time. What do you say to that, Peter? What do you think? I think that's true. But then again, of course, even even then, it wasn't... I mean, the, the Bobby Sox is all screamed at Frank Sinatra. For Sinatra, of course, of course. So, yeah, women scream at, at men they desire. And we were very fortunate to temporarily be amongst that happy band. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm curious. Did you guys have a rivalry back in the day? Nominally, but I, not really. Played up because we people got, got confused. That was the main thing: is yeah. the Americans couldn't work out which was which. But yeah, I mean, it was played up by the press, as in the Beatles and the Stones. There was a little bit of it, but it's but we were friends. I mean, we'd already met. I mean, we knew each other way before we got recording contracts. Yeah, exactly. All right, so tell me, how did you meet? We met, and it's something I want to talk about later, Peter, uh, but for a reason. Uh, we met, we worked out, we met in 1963, Peter and I, at the Pickwick Club, which is, I, I want uh, Peter to talk about the Pickwick Club a bit, which was a haunt. And as you and I talked in the last, uh, my uh, podcast, uh, the clubs were very important. I mean, the clubs, I mean, it was what, it was what George Harrison says when he leaves the Beatles in, in Get Back. Well, I'll see you around the clubs because everybody saw everybody around the clubs. And one of these clubs very much was the Pickwick, which is where Peter and Gordon started. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. And Pickwick was was particularly interesting because it was a mixture of some music business and and rock and roll, but a lot of actors as well. Yeah, and Jeremy qualifies on both on both counts. But <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was it was a cool late night eating and drinking place. Very good too. What you said, Jeremy, and what I've heard from others like John Lodge and Kenny Jones 
was that all the bands basically were friends and you all met up at the pubs after the gigs and uh, everybody got along famously. Is that correct? Generally, I think that's true. Yes. I mean, we, we yes, absolutely. Uh, but we, yeah, you'd meet at the clubs or the pubs or you'd meet at the this place called the Blue Boar, which was the restaurant on the motorway that everyone stopped in. Yes. At that time, only had one motorway, as we called them, one freeway. And that was it. And it only had one weird sort of third-rate restaurant. <laughs> but that's where everybody stopped. You, if you Every time you walked in there, you'd find some other band to chat. Yeah, I know in the United States, all the, the, the kids' magazines, the teen magazines, used to play up the rivalries that they created, I guess, between the bands. It was always this... The Beatles versus the Stones and, uh, you know, the Dave Clark Five was in there as well. And who knew if it ever was true back then, but I guess it wasn't. Gloria Stavis wrote a lot of that and she she was incredibly good at it. I mean, she, she was a remarkable woman because the whole magazine, she would make up pretty much the entire contents based on an occasional interview with, with one of us in person. But she created a lot of that. She was the queen of all that. All right, Peter, tell us about the first time that you came to the U.S. as Peter and Gordon. Uh, yeah, the first gig we did was the was the World's Fair. Uh, we played at the... Um, In Queens, New York? Yes. Um, at uh, The Unisphere, is that what it's called? Yes, it? yes, yes. Um, which is still there, rusting away. And it was fantastic, you know, because, again, you have to understand how much we idolized America. And I, I had pictures of the New York skyline on my wall, you know, and I knew I was going to go there. I didn't know how at the time. And so just arriving and seeing that skyline for yourself and getting into a big Cadillac limousine with fins and everything, you know, that was, it was just incredible for us. It was like a dream come true. And then, to, of course, to be chased around that skyline by screaming girls, you could only improve the situation. So it was it was great. And that first gig, I remember, you know, the, the police had a habit throughout the early days, of the British invasion of kind of go, don't worry, you know, we can control the situation. It's all fine. And they couldn't, you know, even in cases like the Beatles, they absolutely couldn't. We've all seen the big when the girls at Shea Stadium or wherever it is want to, you know, head for the stage. They just do. And nobody could stop them. And and we had a minor version of that. And the, the World's Fair was particular fun because round the Unisphere, there was a moat with water in it. And the, so the police said, oh, you know, they won't get you. Don't worry, because there's the moat. So all the girls immediately jumped in the moat and swam across. And and so we were attacked by by all these girls. It was like an early version of a wet T-shirt contest. It was fantastic. <laughs> I want you to know that the World's Fair in New York was only there for about two years, but it was almost like having Disneyland on the East Coast. OK, it was a fantastic experience. Yeah, I never went to any. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, we didn't get to go to any of it. We just played there. Well, that Unisphere still does exist. You know, it's now the tennis center where they do the U.S. Open. Ah. And the one thing that's still there and still exists and isn't rusted is the Unisphere. Oh, it's not? Oh, good. I thought I just assumed. You can go was... back and you can go in the moat if you like. Is the moat still there? Well, they have water. I guess you would call it a moat. There's no drawbridge, I'll tell you that. No, no, but it was a strip of water that surrounded the whole stage. We played in the middle. There was one access thing across the moat, and that was it. I see. That's pretty cool. All right, Peter, I got to ask you one more question. Okay, a lot of people know that your sister Jane dated Paul McCartney for a time, and I understand he actually lived with your parents and perhaps yourself as well. Yeah. 
and you had a piano and he would play the piano. He would create his songs on the piano. And I just got this image. Wasn't it like living with Beethoven? What was it like? Probably. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, yes, it, it was. He moved in. He had stayed with us for about two years. He was in the guest room, uh, which is in the top floor of the house next to my bedroom. So so he and I were neighbors and shared a bathroom. And uh, yes, he the, the piano he, he used was downstairs at the, at the extreme opposite end of the house and the in the basement, there was a small music room that my mother used to occasionally use for private oboe lessons, but she was in, using it increasingly less because she was teaching mostly at the Royal Academy where she was professor. And uh, so she had told Paul that was the room he could use. And yes, that's where he wrote an, a number of number of significant songs. And then other ones he wrote on his guitar in, in the bedroom. But yeah, we so we we were both, you know, he was on the road a lot. I was on the road. I was doing other stuff, you know, before well, without love, mostly being at university and studying philosophy and you know, that that kind of unrelated stuff. And uh, but yes, we became friends, and yes, I got to hear some songs, not during the actual writing process, which tends to be a private one, but certainly, you know, he would play them to me at various stages, and that that was they were very impressive. Now, your your colleague uh, Jeff Allen Ross told me that your mother actually gave lessons to George Martin. Is that true? That is true. It's, it's a pure coincidence. It's a rather roundabout story, but in short, because people get it, all the Britain biographies get it wrong because they talk about either my mother was a professor at the Guildhall or that George went to the Royal Academy of Music, neither of which are true. George Martin was at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama or whatever it's called, and my mother was professor at the Royal Academy. At the Guildhall, you had to have a second instrument. George's first instrument was piano and composition, but his second instrument was oboe. He was concerned that his oboe playing wasn't good enough and that he was not going to pass his exams, so he was looking for an independent oboe teacher to bring his playing up to the appropriate level, and somebody pointed him towards my mother. So he went to her as an independent pupil. And he was one of the examples of the, of the private pupils she did use to teach, but actually not in the house at Wimpole Street in our previous residence at uh, Great Portland Street uh, flat. And that's where George came for several oboe lessons, uh, which apparently worked because he did qualify on all counts and graduate from the Guildhall. What a remarkable coincidence, huh? It was extraordinary. So by the time he met her, by the time she was introduced to him as her daughter's boyfriend's record producer, it was like, oh, oh, it's George. <laughs> that was a strange guy. Oh, boy. That's great. Hi, everybody. This is your host, Robert Miller. I'm pleased to tell you that I've got a new album called Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade. It features 10 new songs, plus guest appearances by John Helliwell of Supertramp, Tony Carey of Rainbow, and international sitar sensation Deobrat Mishra. The album has a definite 60s vibe, and the theme of the record is all about relationships and love. 
It may just be my best album ever. The reviewers agree. Indie Shark calls it Album of the Year. Big Celebrity Buzz says it's one of the great rock sets of the year. And Pop Icon calls it an adventure that keeps us on the edge of our seats. How about that? And for me, the icing on the cake is the praise that the album has received from world-class musicians like Steve Hackett of Genesis, Gary Puckett of The Union Gap, Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary, Jim McCarty of The Yardbirds, and David Liebert of The Happenings. I'm going to release the 10 songs on the album in a novel way in five special episodes of this podcast featuring two songs in each one. So be on the lookout for these special episodes of Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to this podcast and please sign up for our weekly emails previewing each episode and much more. The links are all in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. When you let yourself go. All right, let's do that first song fest that we talked about in the introduction. There were so many great songs that came out of that British invasion era. And I guess you guys didn't call it the British invasion where you were coming from, but we called it that in the U.S. And it was a magical era for us. You know, in New York City, where I grew up, there were three stations on the AM dial. There was no FM at the time. Three stations on the AM dial that played rock and roll. And you could literally surf from one station to the next and just hear one hit after another. And it was a magical time. And we, we all had our transistor radios. That's that's all we had. And of course, it was one group after another. And they had the top 40 and this, that and the other thing. And it was just magnificent. But my first guest on this podcast, you probably knew him, was Cousin Brucey Morrow. Of course. Yes. Who was the lead jock on WABC in New York and who's still on the air, if you can imagine that. Absolutely. Yeah. Know him well. Yes. Yeah. All right. So let's come up with some interesting choices for this first song fest, British Invasion songs that were either one hit wonders or off the beaten path, just not the obvious choices. And I'll start it off just to you know show where I was going with this. And my first one was a song called Yeah, Yeah by Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames. 1965, it made number one in the UK. I don't think it made number one in the United States, but I love that song. And when she asked me if everything is okay, I got my answer. The only thing I can say, I said, yeah, yeah. That's what I say, I said, yeah, yeah. We'll play a melody and turn the lights. Yeah, it's a great song. I mean, it stands out for a number of reasons. First of all, he was primarily a jazz musician and a wonderful organ player, and still is. He plays terrifically. And secondly, I don't know the answer to this question, but that may well be a British song, is it? I was going to make this a 10-point toss-up for you. 
that was a cover of a song by another artist, a famous artist that I would not have guessed. No idea. Mongo Santa Maria. Oh, so it's so it's an American song. Yes, it was an instrumental by Mongo Santa Maria that somebody put some lyrics to, and then Georgie Fame did it. Because I, the point I was going to make is that exact point, which is yes, it was the British invasion, but they were all American songs. I mean, you know, you have to remember how much of the it all was based on again our love for America and our love for American music. So look at it, even the Beatles until they started writing their own songs, which it turned out they could do rather well. But until that moment, they never sang a British song. It's all about America and American music. And and the same, you know, and there was a competition among the British bands, unspoken competition, for finding cool American songs that the other people didn't know. I mean, there was there were certain songs that everybody did, like Twist and Shout. Every band did Twist and Shout. But there were some where you'd kind of look for you know, like the Nashville teens finding Tobacco Road or, you know, these these obscurities. And that would probably be one of my semi-obscurities because that might have been their only hit, I think. But actually, if I had to pick one that I really like, which is a prime example of that, and is in a sense a one-hit wonder for a reason you'll understand, was, was Go Now. Oh, yes. The Moody Blues began, of course, as a blues band, you know, long before they all put on white satin and danced off with the Mellotrons and stuff. It was a completely different band. And Denny Lane, of course, being the lead singer. And they found a song. And I think the original artist was called Bessie Banks. Yes, Bessie Banks. Yes, that's right. But I mean, I none of us knew that one. I don't know where they found it. I don't know how big a hit it was in America. But I don't remember any other bands doing that song or finding that song. They did. And I love that record. The, the, the piano's all distorted and the recording's terrible. It was done in, in that place. What was the studio in Denmark Street that everyone went to? Um, the Stones worked there as well. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, can't remember. Regent Sound. Well done. It was recorded there. And the piano's distorted and probably been from like tape to tape to tape. But Denny's vocal is spectacular, and I and I love the record. So it's a one-hit wonder only in the sense that that version of the movie Moody Blues never had another hit. Of course, they had monster hits with Nights in White Satin and all that stuff later on, but that's virtually a completely different band in terms of its tone and flavor and kind of music. Right. Okay, Jeremy, your turn. Well, mine. I was actually going back before the British invasion to the roots of the British invasion. And I was thinking about a song by Johnny Kidd and the Pirates called Shaking All Over. That's when I get the shakes all over me. Quivers down the backbone. Shaking all over. 
And I've no idea whether the Americans know this, you see. This is the thing. And this was a huge influence. It's in 1960, it was, it was a huge hit in England. And Chad and I had a band. We had our own little sort of folky duo thing, which we did in restaurants and stuff. But we also had a sort of school band for Central School of Speech and Drama. And this was one of the records that absolutely we wanted to try and nail and, of course, never could. Because it's and it's a huge influence. I mean, it's one of those records that really stands out. Very tough guitar lick too. The didn't the Who play that song? I don't think so. Maybe I thought that they did in concert. But you're right. It it was Daltrey or somebody goes shaking all over. The Who covered it. The Who covered it later. They did. Okay. Okay. I mean, it's a sort of seminal work for guitarists, if you know what I mean, yeah. right, at the, right at the cusp of the 60s. And is that an American song? Do we know? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. Interesting. All right, let's go to the next one. Peter, do you want to go, or would you like me to throw my second one on the table? Uh, no, I think, I think you'd better. I'm, I'm, I'm lacking a second one at the moment. You're still thinking, okay? All right. <laughs> Here's one that I always loved. It didn't make a big, big hit in the States, but I think it did really well in the UK. Girl Don't Come by Sandy Shaw. Yes. Yeah. You have a date for your best day tonight Some distant bell starts chiming now You wanna see her You wanna see her Oh yeah So you wait, you wait and wait Girl, don't come The time rolls on Those minutes fly by it was a light kind of bossa nova-ish type of a feel. And she was just, I thought she was an exquisite singer on that song. Oh, she was exquisite in every way. Yeah. Pulled that down to my bare feet. It's called lack of. <laughs> yeah, no, she's, I, I, I knew her a bit. She was, she was great, charming and funny. And, and I ran into her only a year or so ago. Ah. And I, you know, gushed. Um, she's terrific. Is she still performing? I don't think so, but God, what did I, there was some complicated thing I just read and I'm going to get this wrong. Her ex-husband was that guy, Jeff something or other, who was a clothing designer. And evidently he's now become some seriously big deal. I was reading something about him and the clothes company and this, that, and the other. I forget his name, but I remember um, that he, his main claim to fame, as far as I was concerned, was that he was Sandy Shaw's husband back in the day. A role that we all would have relished. All right. Do either of you have another one? I'm going to go further back, actually, before the British invasion, only because I think, you know, as you know, cannot emphasize how rare British hits were. But this opens up a whole other topic of, you know, Britain adopting American music in a whole other way. And that's Lonnie Donegan's Rock Island Line. Of course, you don't get what you say now, going home and going down the Rock Island Line. She said, but I fooled you, I fooled you, I got pig iron, I got pig iron, I got all 
Because I, you know, he did have another hit. He had "Does Your Chewing Gum Lose Its Flavor on the Bedpost Overnight," which we shall overlook. <laughs> <laughs> but Rock Island Line was a great record. But I mean, it was it was a super clear example of of our adulation of America. I mean, at the beginning of it, because he has this sort of bogus American accent for the whole song, you know. But of course, that gave rise to Skiffle, which is a giant American. A, a giant musical movement based on American music that flourished in Britain to an extraordinary degree, which both Jeremy and I at Skiffle Groups, everyone did. It's so interesting because so many of my guests, British guests, we we spoke about the fact that essentially you guys took American blues that was not as popular as it should have been in America, brought mm. it over to England, redid it and brought it back to us. And then it became incredibly you know, valuable and popular. Yes, yes, that's true. And there's still people in England who are, you know, greater experts on the American blues even than, than you know, the, in America. It's a, it's a thing for sure. It was then and it still is. And Skiffle was different. As I say, Skiffle, you know, um, Jeremy and I talk about occasionally, but it's, it's a, yes. it became a, a, a whole movement. And of course, it was so easy for everyone to have a band. And you all sang certain specific skiffle songs all of which were american we missed all of that in the u.s there was no skiffle movement in the u.s no but there was something called jug band yes. which is the nearest you can get to it you know with somebody with a uh, you know the... jim queskin for example exactly yes yeah. um and uh what's that thing you you do the, the oh. washboard no, 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 no. I'm thinking about the instrument with the uh, with all the uh, the the, uh, the the you have a stand up the washtub bass, tea chest or washtub bass. That's the right. And and then what was the percussion? What was it? that was on a washboard. Washboard, yeah. Washboard, but of course you don't have many washboards around anymore. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Washboard played with thimbles, like which is which is very New Orleans. Oh, yeah, or Zydeco, or you use washboards. Yeah, of course, of course. Zydeco. All right, I got one more for you. This one was another one that I thought was a great song. It became a big hit in the UK as well as the US. I'm talking about Concrete and Clay by Unit 4 Plus 2. Always love that name. And you to me are soft as summer rain and don't kill up That's something red. The sidewalks in the street. Yes. Yeah. Good record. Yeah. Very good. Terrific. Never knew them. I don't, I don't remember meeting them at all. Don't remember ever being on a bill with no, them. No, it's surprising. Yeah. I think they were created. What I read about them was that it was some kind of a, you know, a, a, a group that existed in the studio with studio musicians and they added a couple of guys into it. And I think this was the only time they ever had a hit of any kind. Could be. Yeah. So, but they had covers of that song I read in Sweden, 
in Finland, in France, and in Germany. Mm. So it was a biggie at the time. All right. So we've progressed through the, the British invasion era. And uh, what we didn't do, because I want to do that second part of the Songfest, you know, we played a, a bunch of songs by Chad and Jeremy when I had Jeremy as my guest. But I wanted to do the same thing for you, Peter. And we're going to start off with, again, my favorite song by you and your partner was that Del Shannon record of I Go to Pieces. When I see her coming down the street I get so shaky and I feel so weak I tell my eyes look the other way But they don't seem to hear a word I say And I go to pieces and I want to It was just exquisite. I thought the song was beautiful. The recording was beautiful. Tell me your recollections and feelings about that at this point. No, I I, I agree with you. I think it is, well, World Without Love may be the most significant uh, life-changing song in our history of recordings. Um, I Go To Pieces is my favorite. I, I heard the song, you may know the story, but I heard the song in Australia. We were touring with Del Shannon which we were excited about, of course, because he was a big hero. And we were touring with him and The Searchers. And Dell had written the song. I've since discovered he he tried to interest some American artists in it before, we, before he went to Australia and got no takers. And when he got to Australia, he tried to sell the song to The Searchers. He thought that they would do it very well, which, by the way, I think he's right. They could, with their jangly electric guitar sound, they could have made a great record of it. But fortunately... Um, I overheard this encounter. He played it to them in their dressing room and they declined very politely. Uh, you know, sorry, we, you know, Mr. Shannon, sir, but, you know, it's a great song. But we don't think it's right for us. And so so we were not his first choice by any means. Indeed, we. I then went to Dell and said, look, I overheard that song, but can we learn it? We think it's pretty good. And he taught us the song. We worked it out, you know, probably at sound checks or the next few gigs. And to, to, said to Dell, you know, we I like the song a lot. It sounds good in harmony. Please uh, don't give it to anyone else. As soon as we get back to London, we will record it. And we did. And yes, it, it's I like the way it came out. I like the arrangement, like the production, and and we sing it well. And it's 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 a it's a good record. You know, I'm more I'm proud of I'm, compared to for, say something like Night in Rusty Armor, which I could happily live without for the rest of my days. <laughs> And it's 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 a song. It's one we do in our show, right? That's we do indeed. Yes, it's a, yes indeed. And they they do seem to still like it, and know it. Yep. It's a song and a record that have literally stood the test of time. You can listen to that right now, and it just it it resonates as well now as it did back in the day. Yeah. You can't say that about so many records either. And it's a sad song, of course, you know. But to some extent, as we know, Dell was kind of a sad man, you know. But we liked him very much. We got to know him a bit in the course of the tour. His manager was kind of creepy, a guy called Irving Mechanic, and who looked like a like an American manager is supposed to look, with natty sports jacket and a big cigar. But I didn't like the look of him very much. And and it turns out, yeah, that Dell was getting ripped off and all kinds of stuff. Uh, all right, you had several 
hits, as I mentioned before, by Lennon and McCartney. And I'm, you know, you can pick whichever one you want because I, I love them all. Nobody I know was a great song. Tell us what's the one that kind of really comes to mind when you think of the Lennon McCartney songs that you guys did? Well, first of all, yeah, they're called Lennon McCartney songs, but they're actually McCartney songs, of course. I mean, technically, you're entirely correct. They're credited to Lennon and McCartney, but John didn't write a note of them. Not a note. Not that I know. Paul has repeatedly said in interviews, well, what would I love? He wrote when he was 16. It didn't have a bridge, but he wrote that verse, the first verse, when he was 16. And, and you know, he suggested it to John as a for the Beatles. And John laughed it away. He said he thought the first line was ridiculous to John, to John, any song that started, please lock me away. So when Paul would sing that first line, where John would interrupt him and say, "Okay, I will," the song's over, and so I'd have to pick that one obviously because it, it changed my life. You know, having a number one record in America um, meant that I would get to go there. It meant that I was quitting school. I was never going to get my degree in philosophy, whatever that was for, and uh, and so on. So, but but uh, as a favorite, since you know, I think maybe. I would play something different. I would play I Don't Want to See You Again. Lovely song. Which is a good song that people don't know as well. I don't want to see you again. I hear that love is planned. How can I understand when someone says to me, I don't want to see you again. But it's another McCartney song and uh, that he wrote specifically for us. And it's very good. It's another one we do actually do live that, that works really well. Because it's funny, because even though it's quite an orchestral record, we've discovered that it works very well with our, the little lineup we go out on the road with. Jeremy plays rhythm and guitar in it very well. And and uh, and I just sing it. And it's it's really fun. And I read that McCartney wrote Woman under a pseudonym. Am I correct? Well, he wrote it and asked us, said he'd written it for us, and we liked it and said we'd be ha happy to record it. But yes, he asked if it could be released under a pseudonym because people at the time were suggesting that anything with his name on it or the name Beatles on it would automatically be a success. Woman, do you love me? The deception didn't last very long because it was very amateurly done. You know, it was still published by Northern Songs and things like that. So the connection was evident and the press figured it out. But even though it only took two or three weeks to figure it out, it was already all over the radio and already a hit. So so Paul proved his point. But it, it was supposed to be under the name Bernard Webb or Bernard Webb in America, of course. 
But for some reason in America, it came out for a while under the name of A. Smith. I think somehow they got the message that it was supposed to be a pseudonym, but not what the pseudonym was. It was all a bit of a muddle. But yes, it was not released under McCartney. And I, I actually, it's, it's curious. I wonder if now, if you buy like a Greatest Hits album or something, is it now listed under McCartney? I don't know. Or Lennon and McCartney, I suppose. It would have been contractually at the time. Good question. All right, I have to ask you about this one. The one song in your repertoire that I just thought was kind of an outlier, and you probably know what I'm leading to, Lady Godiva. It was a fun song. It was risque for the time. Okay, when you really listen yes, to the incredibly. lyrics, it was actually, it was actually banned <laughs> in a couple of places. <laughs> Were you forced to do it? Did you love it? Tell us about that one. I didn't love it that much. I, when when the song came to us, well, first of all, you, do you know who wrote the song? There is a a curious and secondary Beatle connection to to this song. Tell us. It's today's trivia question. What's the Beatle connection with between? with Lady Godiva. The answer is, it was written by a guy called Mike Leander, a fine songwriter and fine arranger, who also, of course, is particularly well-known for having written the beautiful string arrangement for She's Leaving Home, wow. the only only Beatle orchestration not written by George Martin. So Mike Leander was capable of writing something as subtle and beautiful uh, and, and sublime as She's Leaving Home and also something as ridiculous as Lady Godiva. But um, it was Gordon, as I recall, who actually said, you know, because I was going, I don't know about this. You know, it suddenly we're, we're like Mrs. Brown, you got a lovely daughter. We're in novelty world. But he said, you know, basically, don't be so snooty. It, it, it's quite catchy and it could be a hit. And he was right. It was a big hit. As I say, then then more more shamefully, we did a follow-up to it called Night in Rusty Armour that was completely dreadful, um, more dreadful. Lady Godiva, I've, I've grown to appreciate. Um, Night in Rusty Armour, I never shall. My last one here, and I, I picked out a song that the two of you have done. This is a live version by Peter and Jeremy of A Summer Song from 2018. us about your performance of that and your performances together to me the fun thing and then i'll let jeremy explain but to me the fun thing about it obviously is that we got to sing these songs you know because you know i knew the 
the uh, Chad and Jeremy songs as hits, you know, in the same way, you know, you, when you hear something on the radio a lot, you learn it, whether you mean to or not. And, but I'd never sung them before. So, so part of the fun of getting together and figuring out this tour was, was that we get to learn each other's songs and sing them together. And, and it worked, you know, because the, as I say, the amazing coincidence about, the Peter and Gordon, Chad and Jeremy story is that now there's just us two survivors. At least the right ones survived, harmonically speaking, you know, in the sense yeah, that's right. that Jeremy could continue to sing the low part and the lead vocal. I could continue to sing the harmony, not just on our songs, but on the Chad and Jeremy songs as well. And I enjoy doing it every night. Summer song is a pleasure to sing, you know. And the other thing is that it's not just the music, but we also, I mean, there's a lot of, we send each other up, as they say, and in, in yeah. uh, we don't take each other terribly seriously and tell silly stories and show clips of all kinds of uh, ridiculous things that we've been involved in. Now, we've talked about, you know, the Chad Jeremy on the Dick Van Dyke show, but Peter's got a couple of clips that are are um, hair-raising. There's a particular one where uh, you... What was that? It was the Red Skelton show. I the think. Red Skelton show, yes. We were... We were, we, we did as we were told, and, and <laughs> upon reflection, perhaps we shouldn't have. But, but uh, yeah, no, the shows are a lot of fun. I mean, they're, they're fun musically, but they're fun in general. We we both fancy ourselves as, 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 as good at the sort of witty repartee aspect of life as well as the musical aspects. Yeah. I'm sure that the shows are a lot of fun and bring back great memories, of course. What's the future going to be for the two of you together? What are you going to do next? I'm not really sure. I know we're trying to fit in um, some, some more shows somewhere in the year, but I'm, I'm honestly not quite sure where that stands at the moment. But there will be some, you know, we can confidently say, coming to your town soon. We just don't know when soon is. And you don't know which town. <laughs> we don't know which town. Or which coast. Exactly. But we, we will get it together. There are people working on that. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, keep your eyes open for wherever Peter and Jeremy might be performing at some point in time, parts unknown. We have been having a great time here with Peter Asher and Jeremy Clyde. Peter and Jeremy, I want to thank you both for being on this podcast. It's been such a blast to have you on, and I appreciate it so much. Thank you very much for having us. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. What fun. All right. We're going to listen now to that song that started off the episode. It's my new song called This Time from the new album, Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Take you for a ride this time. I really, I really want to make you run and hide this time. My instincts all are failing. I feel like I am failing. I'm trying just to stop on a dime. I really, I really want to make you mine this time.
something more this time. My temperature is rising. I feel like I'm dying. Like someone just committed a crime. I really, I really want to make you mine this time. Really, I really want to make you mine this time. 